Okay, so uh, as I said, Easter is coming. Easter is April the 5th, and usually in the church, what we do is we stop and notice the Sunday before Easter. We pay attention to um, what is called Palm Sunday, and we usually look at the passage where Jesus rides into town on a donkey on Palm Sunday, and we talk about that. And then we have a Good Friday service, we talk about the cross. Then we have an Easter Sunday service when we talk about the resurrection. Obviously, all of those things are super important, right? In fact, this is the time of year that is the coolest time of year for me. This is the time of year that I am, like, excited the way kids are excited before Christmas. As Easter draws near, I get excited because every year when I wake up on Easter morning, my first thought is always, he's alive. And because he's alive, sin has been defeated on our behalf. Death has been defeated on our behalf. Because he is resurrected, I will be resurrected. All of my hope is sort of bound up in this picture that Jesus came to earth, paid the price for my sin, and then rose from the dead, defeating sin and death on my behalf. So I get all excited about Easter. And I like chocolate bunnies too, but that's really mostly about the resurrection. Um, and so the clock is beginning to tick. And as we think about those days, uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Um, this year, I want us to do something a little bit different. Instead of waiting until Palm Sunday to think about those three days, what I really want us to do is I want us to really get some historical perspective and some biblical perspective on what those days are about and what really happened on those days and why it matters so much. So what we're going to do is, instead of waiting until Palm Sunday to jump into this, what we're going to do is look at that whole week, those days in between Palm Sunday all the way to Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to take a moment and we're going to look and see what was going on in Jesus' life and ministry during those days of that week, that last week before the cross. And I want us to make sure that we're getting a full biblical perspective and a full historical perspective. So I want to, I want to begin by taking you back to roughly a thousand years before the time of Jesus. It's the reign of David. It's the heyday of the nation of Israel. It is when they're at their apex of who they are as a nation. Their greatest um, patriarch or, or, or father, if you will, is David, the one who is the king, the one who um, is a man after God's own heart, the one who is a forerunner to the Messiah, the one who the scripture says that he will be the great, 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 great grandfather of the Messiah. And, and under David's reign, the nation was all about God. They were all about worship. And David was the great worship king. And they would have these gatherings of great times of worship and praise. And God would bless their nation so that the nation was becoming wealthy and they were strong militarily. And all of the nations around them sort of stood in awe and watched and said, wow, look at this nation whose God is the Lord. And look how God blesses them. And so that's been a thousand years since then. And since then, it's been mostly downhill for Israel. Solomon comes to power, he builds a great temple, and it's a wonderful time, except Solomon gets distracted, and he begins to go after other gods, and, and idolatry comes into the nation of Israel, and then it lists in the books of Kings and Chronicles, it lists all of these kings who come, and all they do is just continue to support idolatry in the land, and the people just get further and further from God, and they go through this series of punishments, 
where God allows a foreign nation to come in and he just takes control of them. And oftentimes they are taken captive and they're taken away from their homeland only to be restored later. And then taken captive again only to be restored later. And they've gone through this again and again and again. And then in the last 300 years or so of the Old Testament age, the, the prophecies, the things that are written, the things that God is sharing with them are often these very strange, very weird sort of apocalyptic pictures about a day that's coming that's going to be when Israel is revived and they're ushered back into God's full blessing and they're experiencing this deliverance and no longer will they be held under the thumb of some captive who doesn't worship the one true God. And they're, they're, they're waiting for this day. And so for 300 years, that's pretty much all they're hearing from God is, listen, there's a day coming. I'm going to send you a deliverer. I'm going to send you a redeemer. I'm going to send you a Messiah, one who will save. And I want you to wait for that Messiah. That's going to be your time of deliverance. But they hadn't been great as a nation since the time of David. And in fact, if you go all the way back, you have to go back 1,446 years before the year that Christ was crucified the time of the Passover. You remember they were captive in Egypt and God raised up Moses and he challenged Pharaoh and finally Pharaoh let the people go after all the plagues and the final plague was the death of the firstborn, right? And then uh, God said listen, I want you to, to the children of Israel I want you to slaughter a lamb, I want you to take the blood and put it above the, the mantle of the doorway and down the doorpost and when the angel flies over and sees um, sees a house that is under the blood, then they will be saved, right? And this terrible, terrible plague of death comes upon the Egyptians during the night, and finally they let the people go. And from that day forward, they celebrate what is called the Passover, right? Every year at the same time, the nation of Israel celebrates the Passover, the time when the angel of death passed over them and instead inflicted God's wrath upon others. And they were under this blood. So there's this symbolism there of this spotless lamb who gives up his blood. And when you're under that blood, you're saved from God's wrath. That was 1,446 years before Jesus goes into the upper room to eat the Passover dinner with his own disciples before his death. Now, here's the thing you have to understand about the Passover week. The Passover week in Israel was by far the biggest week of the year. It was the most patriotic that the nation of Israel ever was because here they were under the captivity of the Romans, just as they had been under the captivity of the Egyptians, just as they had later been under the captivity of the Assyrians, just as they had been under the captivity of the Babylonians, just as they had been under the captivity of the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans, right? This whole thousand years of difficulty and struggling and being persecuted. And now they gather to come for the Passover week and they gather in Jerusalem. And every year when the people come to Jerusalem, the city swells because it's the holy city for the Jews. And so if you're anywhere near or you could even make a pilgrimage, you're expected to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so the historians of the day tell us that every year at the Passover, the priest would slay over 250,000 lambs. Wow. That's a lot of blood. 
250,000 lambs every year, and there would be uh, roughly 10 people minimum that would eat together each lamb according to the law. So if you do the math, you go, there's two and a half million to three million, maybe three and a half million people in the city of Jerusalem, which is not a giant place every year at Passover, right? So the city is just bustling. It's just packed. Picture Manhattan on the busiest day. Or, or, or Seoul, Korea, or Beijing, or Mexico City, or any of these places where there's this huge concentration of people all in the same place. That's what it's like during Passover week. The difference is in Manhattan, there's giant buildings and lots of infrastructure and lots of ways to handle that many people. But in Jerusalem, they're only there one week of the year. And so you have this massive, massive pilgrimage going on. And there are people everywhere, and there's a buzz in the city like never before. Why is there a buzz? Because there's rumors going around about this guy, Jesus. You know, there's these stories that have been surfacing for probably three years now about the stuff that this guy did. One guy says, you know what I've heard? He actually walks on water. Somebody says, well, I don't, I don't know about that. But but I heard that he was he was in a boat one time when the waves began crashing and he just stood up and went shh and the wind and the waves obeyed him. And somebody said yeah I think that might just be a rumor but the thing that I know for sure I was on the shore of the Gerasenes where when he came over and when he got there there was this guy and we all knew him he lived in the tombs because he was possessed by a whole bunch of demons and Jesus confronted this guy and I was there I saw him he cast these demons into a herd of swine the swine went off a cliff and into the water, and the guy sat there in his right mind, perfectly calm, delivered from the demons. And people say, wait a minute, you saw that? He goes, I saw it with my own eyes. And the word is going around. A guy says, I know a guy whose brother's friend was born blind. Jesus spit in his eyes, and then he could see. Somebody says, that's ridiculous. But I heard about this time when he was feeding 5,000 people out of one kid's lunchbox. Could this be? Could this guy be the Messiah that we've been waiting for? As the people come into Jerusalem, the rumors are going around and the people are just buzzing about how exciting this could be. Could he be the Messiah? Could this be the week? The scripture talks about blind people who will see how dead will be raised and how the deaf will hear and the lame will leap. And we hear all these stories about him. This might be the one. This might be the season. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get a sense of this whole story as it unfolds from the book of Mark. So I want you to take your Bibles, go to the New Testament. The second book of the New Testament is the book of Mark. And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to pick up the story there. Mark chapter 11, there's maybe two and a half, three million people in the city, and here's what happens, Mark 11 verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage, at Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, well, why are you doing this? You say the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. 
They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the field. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting. Now let's just stop there. I want you to get a picture of this. Maybe you're very familiar with the story. This is what we have come to call Palm Sunday because they were taking these palm branches and they were putting them on the ground along with their coats and their tunics. And they were allowing the donkey to walk on top of them so they wouldn't have to touch the dust because this donkey was carrying Jesus. And the, and the disciples had put their coats on top of the donkey and now this donkey is sanctified so they don't even want the donkey to touch the dust. And the people are, are, are lying in the streets and they're beginning to shout. Now remember I told you there's a couple, three million people in this city. The place is just packed as far as you can see. And Jesus comes riding in on this donkey. And the prophet Zephaniah had said that your Savior will come in on the, the pole or the colt of a donkey. And he will ride in your Savior. And they were waiting for the Savior. Finally they're going to be set free from the Romans. And here comes Jesus. Now, here's what you have to understand. Already at least five times in the New Testament are we told that the priests and the scribes and the chief priests were discussing among themselves how they would kill him. They had already entered into an oath together that they were going to kill Jesus. And I'm sure that they were plotting and planning, and I'm sure that they were over to the side sort of going, when do you think we're going to find him, and when's going to be the right time? We probably don't want to do it during the Passover because we might have a riot on our hands. And they said, well, we don't have to worry about that. There's no way he would come into Jerusalem during Passover week. He'd have to be crazy. He knows we're waiting for him. There's no way he's going to do that. He's probably hiding somewhere. We're probably going to have to hunt him down and find him. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, riding in on the colt of the donkey. And the people are coming, and the whispering is becoming louder. And it's turning from whispering to talking, and from talking to shouting. And I don't know where it started. I don't know who started it. But all of a sudden, a chant began, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it began to build steam, and the people began to hear. They began to lean out their windows and come out into the streets and join in the throng. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna means save us now. That's the translation. Save us now. So here's this guy, Jesus, riding in, just as the prophet said the Messiah would do. And they're thinking, finally, the day has come. Save us now. Save us now. Look what it says in verse 10. Um, or verse 9. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Our father David's kingdom has finally come back. The prophecies that we've been waiting for since the days of the Passover are finally coming about. And the people are so excited. And even the disciples must be thinking, wow, this is incredible. I did not expect this this week. Because after all, every time the people got excited about Jesus and they wanted to make him king, what would he do? Disappear. And then every time they would say, hey, let's go into Jerusalem and, and declare who you are, he would say this, my time has not yet come. Over and over and over again, Jesus said throughout three years of ministry, my time has not yet come. 
And now here he is riding in on the bull of a donkey, and the people are shouting Hosanna, and Jesus is basking in it. And basically it's become a one-man parade, and there are thousands or tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people on the streets, lining the streets, shouting and singing Hosanna. They're hugging each other. They're high-fiving each other. They're running and getting their friends. They all have their cell phones out, and they're recording it. Everybody's watching it's really exciting. It's going to be a YouTube sensation. And I bet you the disciples are saying, it's the time. His time has finally come. He rides into town. None of this, hey, don't tell people who I am stuff. None of this, my time has not yet come stuff. He's just riding into town, and the people are shouting Hosanna, and he's letting them shout. And the priests and the leaders have been planning to kill him, and now he's riding to the center point of their activity. It's as if he is saying to them, here I am, boys, come and get him. Everybody's cheering. The disciples are swelling with excitement and anticipation, and all I can think is Jesus is looking at all of this and thinking, they don't have a clue. They have no idea what's going on. And he rides in, goes to the temple, and when he gets to the temple, he does nothing. He writes and he makes all this fuss, and look at verse 11, go back, Mark 11, 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. This was why he wrote into town. He, he rides into town, makes this big fuss. Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm here fulfilling the prophecy. Go ahead, shout your hosannas. And he comes riding into town, and he gets off the donkey at the gate of the temple, and he walks in to the outer court, and he looks around, and he says, okay, guys, let's go back. And they leave Jerusalem, and they head back to Bethlehem. And you think, what is that all about? That was Palm Sunday. And it ushers into history the next few days that set the stage for the most significant moments in all of human history. Look at verse 12. On the next day, Monday now, right? On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. What? We had the whole triumphal entry on Sunday. All the hosannas and the prophecies fulfilled. And now it's Monday and he's on his way back in after staying in Bethany overnight. And as they're on their way back in, he wants some breakfast. Now, I just want, I want you to get a sense for what he's going through, right? So I want you to picture this. It's a Monday morning. You, you've slept through your alarm. You wake up a little late. No time for breakfast. You've got to get to work. And so you're driving. You're on your way to work. And you're sitting in traffic. And as you sit in traffic, you're getting crankier and crankier because you realize I have not had any food and I have not had any coffee. And there you are with no coffee, and you say, I don't care if I'm late or not, I am going to Starbucks. And you get off the freeway, and you go to your favorite Starbucks where they have the drive through and you pull into the driveway, and there's like 15 cars in front of you. And you sit, and you wait, and 
you wait, you get more hungry and more frustrated. I know some of you are like, you were watching me last year. And, and you get more hungry and more frustrated, and you are dying for caffeine, and you get to the window, and you say, listen, I just want an all drip and a croissant. And they say, we're sorry, we just ran out. All we have is decaf. This is not a good Monday morning, right? And so you suddenly remember that you have supernatural powers. You look at Starbucks and you say, may no one ever drink from you again. <laughs> and you curse Starbucks. Imagine, imagine if all the Starbucks were closed and immediately closed down one day. The whole American economy would go in the toilet. <laughs> but it wouldn't matter because we would all be so mad we'd be rioting anyway, so that's how it would happen. Okay? Now, I want you to picture that. Now you're Jesus. You're on the way into the city for this day that you have planned. And all you want is some breakfast on the road as you're going in. And you look over and you see a fig tree. It says in full leaf. You see this fig tree in full leaf and you go, yes, there will be figs on that tree. And you go over to the tree and you look and there are no figs on it. And you turn and you curse the fig tree and you say, may no one ever eat from you again. And I love that it says, and the disciples were listening. As if to say, and the disciples were as confused by this as you were. I believe this story, and I'm like, what does this mean, right? Is that, well, why, is this just, have you ever woke up on a Monday morning in just a terrible mood? Maybe this is a bad Monday mood, right? And Jesus just curses the fig tree. Why does he do this? I got nothing for you. I don't know. <laughs> but if it's bothering you, pay attention at the end of the service. We're going to come back, and we're going to see this tree again. See if we can't learn something from it. But for now, let's just realize he curses the fig tree and he appears to be in a terribly bad mood. Now, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach them. And to say, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. So not only has he now cursed a fig tree, but he gets into the city and he goes to the outer court of the temple and he basically has a one-man riot. He turns over the tables, he runs everybody out of there. Now, here's what you have to picture, you have to understand this. The temple is this huge Massive, massive structure. And it's made up of multiple courts. And the outermost court is called the, the Court of the Gentiles. And the Court of the Gentiles is basically where anyone is allowed to go. If you're a tourist that's visiting Jerusalem and you want to find out about their worship and their God and what this is all about, you are invited to the temple. But as an invitee, you can go as far as the first court. You go past the first court, there is literally literally a sign etched into the etched into the archway that goes from the, the first court to the next court that says any Gentile who passes this line will be put to death. Okay? This is the court of the Gentiles. The next court on the inside is the court of the women. And if you are a Jewish woman, you can go as far as that court. 
The next court is called the court of the men. And if you're a Jewish man, you can go as far as that court. The next court is called the court of the priests, and you have to be a priest to go in. So now we're getting close to the Holy of Holies. And then, on the very inner center of the whole thing is what is called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the sacrifice is made on the Day of Atonement. And only one person can go behind the veil and into the Holy of Holies, and that is the high priest, and only one day a year to make sacrifice. And if his heart isn't right, he dies while he's in there. They literally would tie a rope to the high priest when he went in, so that if he died, they could drag him out without having to go in and get him. Okay? So the further you get in, the more you're getting into the center of real worship, right, for the Jews. But the outside is designed for people who are interested in learning more about it, right? That's the court of the Gentiles. Jesus is in the court of the Gentiles. And as he walks into the court of the Gentiles, he sees what only reminds him of a Middle Eastern swap meet. There's animals everywhere. There's people selling stuff everywhere. There are guys that have, you know, the Passover t-shirts for sale. They're doing all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and as the people get in, um, they're immediately greeted by this sort of chaotic situation that really is all about buying and selling. And, and here's what's happening in there. First of all, there's something called money changers. This is a ministry that is run by the priests. I use the word ministry loosely. This is a ministry that is run by the priests. Have you ever gone to a foreign nation and you only have uh, U.S. dollars in your pocket? You get to that nation and they don't want your U.S. dollars, right? You have to trade in your money. And people always say, don't go to the exchange booth at the airport because they rip you off, right? But you have to sometimes because you're going to have to purchase a cab ride. And you're going to have to pay for this and pay for that. So you have to go and they rip you off. I was in uh, London this last summer. And as I, as I got there, I'm like, okay, I'm going to need some money. i got to meet the driver. i got to do all this kind of stuff. And so I go. And, and first of all, everything in London costs double what it costs here. And then secondly, they're getting over on you on the exchange rate. And it is the most frustrating thing in the world when you go, I know they're ripping me off and there's nothing I can do about it. It's, it's, like, it's like when you go to Disneyland and you need to have dinner. <laughs> you know, okay, I need a burger and fries and a Coke. So you get in line, but the first line is for the, uh, the loan documents that you sign, <laughs> right? And then you get in the food line. But they got you. There's nothing you can do. That's what's happening. Okay? The reason is you have to pay a temple tax at Passover time. And the temple tax has to be paid in temple coins. You can't use your regular shekels. It has to be paid in temple coins. And so the priests are literally making a fortune for themselves by doing the exchange rate. Okay? Here's the other thing that happens. You have to sacrifice, there's going to be a sacrifice of a lamb, and then at the temples of the worship, there's also going to be a sacrifice of doves. And the doves and the lambs have to be spotless, right? So what you could do is on your way into the city, you could go to one of these roadside vendors, and you could buy a dove that is in great shape, and you take it in, and it's a reasonable cost, and you bring it with you to the temple. And when you get there, bring it to the priest for the sacrifice, he looks at it and he says, you know, I have to inspect it because it has to be a spotless dove. And he, like, lifts up the wing and moves the feathers and finds a little freckle under the wing. And he says, yeah, this dove is not acceptable. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll give you trade-in value for yours, and then I'll sell you mine, which is acceptable. And you pay double for that. 
Then he takes the dove that he just traded in and sells it to the next guy. This is what they're doing to take advantage of the people. Over and over again, the people are coming in and they're just getting ripped off in the name of God. So this is the day. This is the place where these Gentiles are coming to the court of the Gentiles and they're interested in the things of Yahweh. They want to know about this God. And these Gentiles, this is the view they get. And Jesus walks in and he sees this. And he is just disgusted. Now here's what you have to know about this too. I don't know if you realize this, but this is not the only time he did this, turning over the tables and running the people out. This is the second time he did this. He did it on his first recorded, uh, and when his ministry began, his first year of ministry, when he went to the temple, he did the same thing. He went in there and he made this huge stink and he said, hey, you can't do this. And he ran them all out. And the, the scripture doesn't say what happened the second year. So maybe the second year they're like, hey, we're not setting up our tables this year. Remember what that guy did last year? But by the third year, he goes back and it's in the same situation. And once again, he goes to the temple and makes a huge ruckus and runs everybody out of there. And it also says that there are people carrying their merchandise through the temple. Now, what does this mean? Well, basically, the temple's in the center of the area, and if you need to go from here to here, you have to go around the temple on this big road, and it's going to take you several miles. Let's say that your, your construction company is over here, and you're doing construction over there, and you have a bunch of two-by-fours, and you have to get there. Well, instead of going around the long way, they would actually carry their materials through the court of the Gentiles, and they would cut off the, the uh, make it a shortcut so that it would be much easier on them. And all the while, this place that is designed for worship has been all about greed and laziness and making money. Jesus essentially freaks out. He clears the whole thing. Why would he do this? Why would he, who has so much to lose by making a scene, when he knows that they're out to kill him, why would he ride in on this donkey, come back the next day, and then make, a, make an absolute mockery of what they're trying to do there in the Gentile quarter? Why would he do this? He knows they're watching him. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, hey guys, I'm here, what are you going to do about it? It's like he's, he's baiting them. And they're getting over in the corners and they're talking and saying, what are you doing? Now he's cutting into our profits. we got to do something about this guy. Now, why did Jesus have such a reaction to this situation? Well, look at verse 17. And he began to teach them and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Anytime you're reading in the New Testament and it says, is it not written, the best thing to do is look it up and see if it's written. Well, when Jesus says it's written, it's probably written. So it's pretty easy to find. Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Old Testament, Jeremiah is about three quarters, two thirds of the way through the Old Testament. Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, we're talking here about 600 years before Jesus is cleansing the temple, okay? It's the time of Jeremiah, 600 years before Jesus. Jeremiah 7, 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So God sent Jeremiah 600 years earlier also to the temple gate to make a proclamation. Hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave you to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all the abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So 600 years before, Jeremiah is stationed at the entrance of the temple. And he is standing there saying essentially what Jesus said. And Jesus is quoting Jeremiah when he says, you made it a den of robbers. And what is Jeremiah saying? He's saying, you think that you can live like heathen, but then if you come into this place, that suddenly, if you do your religious duty, that God is pleased with you. And he says, I want you to know, God is not pleased with you. And God says, I, even I, the Lord, have seen it. I know what you're doing. And it makes me sick, God says. Now, that's Jeremiah 7. Flip over one book to the left and get to the book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 56, toward the end of the book of Isaiah. Now Isaiah is 700 years before the cleansing of the temple. In Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. So you have to understand, foreigners are not the most welcome among the people of Israel, right? God said to them, I want you to be a light to the nations, but the nation of Israel said, we need to be separated from so they sort of built up walls around them and said, we don't want any pagans around us. They were supposed to be a light to them, but they became defensive and stopped caring about the lost world around them, right? And God says, even if you're a foreigner and you think that you are separated from my people, I have good news for you. And a eunuch is somebody who's been castrated for his service uh, in, in the royal uh, army or, or uh, the royal guard. He's a person who cannot have any children, right? And he is looked down upon and considered unclean and he's unwelcome to worship God in the temple. And so God even speaks here to the eunuch and says, For thus says the Lord, verse 4, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning my Sabbath and holds his covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, 
their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The very thing that the court of the Gentiles exists for is to be an entryway for the Gentiles to find out about the love of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God. It's God's way of inviting people to him. But now when they come into the court of the Gentiles, this is what they see. They're being, they're being taken advantage of, stolen from, and there's profanity everywhere. And, and even Isaiah, the Lord speaking through Isaiah says this at the end of verse 7, for my house will be called what? A house of prayer for all the peoples. So when Jesus is speaking on this day, he is referring to what Isaiah taught. He is referring to what Jeremiah taught. And he is saying, you have turned this into a den of robbers and, and a place of profanity. You have, you have made it a place where the Gentiles are rejected instead of welcomed. You have done everything the opposite of what I wanted you to do, and I am watching you, says the Lord. So Jesus goes in that day. Do you think that the priests at least understood the reference when Jesus says, it is written? You've turned it into a house of robbers, but my house shall be called a house of prayer? Of course they knew. Jesus was indicting the priests in this moment, and they knew it. And Jesus is saying essentially, okay, guys, you want me? It's on. Let's go. And he is baiting them. And he is inviting them to do what it is they've already set out to do. If Jesus is looking for a fight, he's going to get it. Go back to Mark 11. Verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When the evening came, they would go out of the city. And here's the part I told you to wait for. Verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, okay, so they left for the evening. Now it's Tuesday morning, and they're headed back in. Okay? As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Jesus answered, saying to him, have faith in God. And he goes on to explain the power of God and how our faith activates that power. So they see the wheat, the wheat tree, the fig tree withered, and it's all just, just dried up and bent over and all the leaves are gone. And Peter sees this and he goes, this is the very tree that you just cursed. And Jesus looks at Peter and in, in Hebrew says, no, duh. <laughs> it's exactly the tree that I cursed. That's why it's withered. Now, again, what is this about? It would be one thing if they just get this passing thing, oh, and by the way, he cursed the fig tree, and we never hear about it again. But now on the way back in the next day, we have to hear about the fig tree again. Look, it's a withered fig tree. Why does God want us to think about this fig tree? What's the point? Well, you, you saw in Mark 11, it says that the fig tree was in full leaf. Jesus, seeing a fig tree in full leaf, went over to it, right? Because he was hungry and he wanted to get some figs. Well, here's the deal. This time of year is not the season. In fact, the scripture tells us it was not the season for the trees to bear fruit. There were no fig trees that had figs at this time. But here's what made this tree different. It had leaves. 
You see, at this time of year, the fig trees are these scrawny little things that are not that are not full bushes. But as it comes time to where they're going to bear fruit, they bear lots of leaves, and they get all all filled out. And that's when you know a fig tree has fruit. So here's what Jesus is saying. You know, in a time when there are not any places to get figs, I see this tree and it's full of leaves and it looks like a fruit-bearing tree. And I go to this tree and I find no fruit. It's an object lesson. He's saying, guys, this is exactly what's going on in there in the temple. This is exactly what's going on with your priests. Look at them in their flowing gowns and their phylacteries on their heads. Look at how they quote the scripture and how they keep the law. Look at how they do all of these things to, to try to be um, holier than thou. And yet when you walk up and you take a close look, there is no fruit. Here's what he's saying. Man's religion gets him nowhere. He's trying to make a point here that is suddenly going to become absolutely crystal clear a week later when he's paid the price on the cross. See, his death is necessary because no matter what we do to try to dress ourselves up and make ourselves look religious and righteous and all that kind of stuff, there is no righteousness in us. We can look like we bear fruit, but if there's no fruit, Forcing the issue. 
and he did it with them, and he does the same with us. And so let me leave you with this question to ponder. What would you do with Jesus? And as we move toward Good Friday and Easter on our own calendars, let us be people who are walking in the reality that it's really all about faith and not about any way that we can dress up a pig and make it look like something better. Isn't it good to know that we have a God who can overcome even our greatest weaknesses? Amen. And he loves us.